Okay, great. We're live and recording on Zencaster for the first time. I'm joined by Daniel Hayash, Innovation Manager at the Global Disability Innovation Hub. Uh, my name is Simon Tutor. I'm the Innovation Advisor and Student Enterprise Manager at Sussex Innovation. Daniel, Udvajoyuk. Udvajoyuk. Servus, Simon. <laughs> I uh, see was, you've been practicing your Hungarian. I've been having a go, Daniel. I'm trying. Um, what was the second Hungarian word you said after saying welcome? Oh, it's like hello. Just um, ah, it's, okay. it's actually quite similar to German slash Austrian. Servus. I think um, you know in, in Austria definitely they use the same word, but it's it's just kind of a, a hello, really. Okay, excellent. Servus. Mm-hmm. Well done. Good pronunciation. I'm I'm every day impressed by your pronunciation of my name, which nobody can get right, and you do. And I, uh, you I know, like to make these... an effort, Daniel. I do my best. Yeah. yeah um, Hayash. It took me a while. I, I always called you Hajas before, right? But then one yes. day I was like, I, I need to get that right um, because audio is very important to us all, um, especially mm-hmm. uh, to yourself, Daniel. And we'll talk more about that in a minute as well. Um, so welcome everyone. Welcome Daniel. Um, thanks for taking the time to listen to to us. Uh, it's, it's greatly appreciated by us both. And Daniel, thanks for making time to talk to me today. Uh, Daniel, I'd like to talk to you about yourself um, and also Global Disability Innovation Hub, both the past, the present and the future of yourself and, and the organisation. Um, so let's kick off with the start of a 10 question. I want you to, Daniel, I want you to take me back. I want you to take me back to the beginning. I want you to talk to me about where when you were born where you were born childhood for daniel give us the story all right i'll try my best and you know just as a very of warning i can talk for a long time so anytime it's way too detailed let me know okay. um all right so let's go and wind back to 1994 february the 24th when i was born uh, in in a hospital bed um and then life was all great you know my parents were happy i suppose i was happy Everything was beautiful for the first few years, I, th- I think two or three years of my life, which I unfortunately don't really remember, but that's just by design, I suppose. And then my parents started noticing that when I play with different toys, lots of Lego and, and different logic toys. So my parents always made sure that I play with, you know, things that kind of help my brain kind of be engaged, really. Uh, luckily, at the time, we didn't really have smartphones and all that. So I had to be creative on my own ways. And... Um, yeah, they noticed that, you know, I, I tend to look at things more you know, closer and closer. So they were a bit concerned and they, they took me out to an ophthalmologist. And yeah, the, the fears were confirmed that, that there's something not quite right in my eyes. The only thing is they didn't really know what. They just saw that my eyes don't work as they should. They, they saw um, all sorts of things. And that actually just was really the story of my life for the next 10, 15 years. So up to the age of 16, I, I really regularly went for eye health checks, kind of on a weekly, monthly basis. I had many surgeries, but they were all just tried to, uh, you know, fix side effects, not really uh, at the root of the, the cause. And that just meant that, I guess, inevit- inevitably by the age of 16 or 17, my retina detached, uh, again, for, for pretty much unknown reasons. There were some really scary guesses at the time, all the way from a cancer developing in the eye and so on. But it was all guesswork. Um, as far as we know, you know, 10 years later, it doesn't seem to be true. But the, the outcome was that the retina detached in my both eyes. And uh, roughly in the middle of uh, secondary school, I, I did lose completely all my sight. 
So one advantage to this was that at least I have around 16 years of visual experience, so I, I kind of know what things look like. Um, but the disadvantage is that it, you know, it, it was a bit uh, of a shock at the time. I kind of had to relearn anything and everything from you know, just pouring a glass of water to uh, writing out high-level equations in, in my notepad. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how, how my sight loss uh, came around. And in the in the passion of talking about how I lost my sight, I don't think I mentioned that I was born in Hungary. That's where I'm originally coming from. And then I had a bit of a period when I lived in Croatia, altogether eight years. So first three years from 2000 to 2013, then back to Hungary for five years, and then again back to Croatia for another five years, just before I moved to England in 2013 to, to start my undergraduate studies at the University of Sussex. Cool. Great stuff, Daniel. Thanks for that insight into your early years um, and the journey to Sussex. Um, that's fascinating. I've got so many questions, you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I'm interested to ask you about the site that you had until you said you were 16, right? Yes. When your yes. retina detached. So mm-hmm. what describe to me, please, in, and it, it, sometimes words don't do justice to sight, so that's challenging, right? But based on your memory, what do you remember seeing up to the age of sixteen? Like, how what what level of vision did you have? That's a very interesting question. And um, even though medically speaking, I only had at most ten percent vision. So you know what you would see, I would have seen just ten percent of that on paper. But because I never knew any better, to me that that ten percent was like, well, do you need anything better than this? I mean, okay, sure, I could, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe see a bit further, or maybe you know, see smaller font or something like that. But yeah, it was good. I could do pretty much anything. I wouldn't be able to drive and that sort of stuff, but it was good enough. I I had to use magnifiers to read uh, text and so on. And then when I lost that remaining ten percent. And, and I became completely blind. Now that's that's a big difference. So so really, I think there is is um, sufficient sight. I I had. I, I think nature a bit overkilled it. I mean, you really don't need a hundred percent, right? Uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> I was fine with just ten percent. And I, I remember, you know, the, the kind of body types and facial features of people, their hair color, the clothes, you know, the vivid colors of clothes. I have like this um, very vivid memories still of of like you know scenes in nature when we went sightseeing to paris or or different places and you know just being in the sea so so everything was uh, good the only things i i kind of failed at so to speak is you know if if there was a hundred meters between me and my my parents or friends on a street and you know we were approaching each other i wouldn't really recognize them until sort of you know, five ten meters range um but you know, you you managed to get around it. It was it was a bit uh, riskier in in you know like traffic and so on. But otherwise, I imagine. But again, it's hard to tell. I have experienced everything the same way other people do. You know, including like video games, movies, and so on. Daniel, I want to talk to you about losing your sight. Mm-hmm. So going from ten percent to zero percent. That's quite profound, right? Um, you experience the world now in an audio kinesthetic way. Is that a reasonable way of explaining and describing your experience of reality? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very fancy way of describing. Yeah, I <laughs> I build my mental image using uh, my you know, sense of touch and and hearing. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, cool. I'm just getting to grips with this, Daniel. Okay, because obviously okay. in my in my day to day existence, I, I'm shutting my eyes now just 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 to kind of grasp a little bit more deeply. Obviously, it's not a, a, a fair experiment because I can just open my eyes when I finish, right? But I'm still mm-hmm. closing my eyes and I'm just trying. And I, I've done this before as a thought experiment. You know, uh, I've worked in the charity sector for 10 years before I joined Sussex Innovation mm-hmm. and worked with blind charities amongst others, many others, deaf charities and humanitarian charities. I mean, I'd be here for a boringly long time if I said all the charities that I work with. Um, so yeah okay something I've asked people before Mm -hmm. if you had to lose one sense which one would you least like to lose Mm -hmm. we receive so much information through our eyes Daniel and you know Mm -hmm. this right because you experienced a form of sight and Mm -hmm. so it's quite the for, for listeners, anyone listening to this now, the, the the way I describe Daniel to himself and to others when I talk about Daniel Hayash is that I, I, I describe him as being in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because <laughs> I, and I mean that when I say it, because, yeah, yeah. yeah, like, I think, isn't it interesting, Daniel? Here's my thought. Isn't it interesting how when one is denied a sense, whatever sense it may be, whether it's mm-hmm. sight, um, whether it's deafness, whether any any sense lost, it enhances the other senses. One is one we adapt, we innovate, we evolve. We so like I'm extra conscious when I talk to you, Daniel, about my my own speech, um, mm-hmm. because that is such a key sense. The audio piece when I'm talking to you. So yeah, like you, you will have extra skills in interpreting people's emotions, for example, when they speak, right? Well, sometimes I guess it, it might also link to just generally how sensitive uh, one is in, in terms of emotions. But yeah, I think one really important thing that you mentioned there uh, after speaking about in enhancing other senses is enhancing the skills as well. So, you know, just uh, a very boring example, but maybe an easy to understand example is that you know, it's not only that my my touch and hearing was enhanced or the way I usually put it is I pay I simply pay more attention to it because I need to, but also because I was you know, denied the ability to look at the keyboard and I use my fingers to press the keys one by one after the other, I just, I just had to learn how not to look at the keyboard and use all my 10 fingers to, to type uh, mm. kind of in parallel. But it, it's true with so many other things. Um, as, as you said, for example, uh, being able to understand people's emotions. Like so many times I surprise or even shock my friends and family that they do something in quiet. And I just know what it is. Like, what I mean is, like, we are in the conversation. They, they go quiet for five seconds. There's absolutely no audible feedback. I'm like, you're not listening to me. You're on your phone. 
they're like, oh, sorry, I'm putting it away. I'm like, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it, Daniel. Um, I It gives me joy to talk to you. So much joy. Um, and we've had, we've known each other now, crikey. What year did you take place in Startup Sussex, Daniel? Do you remember? Um, I think that was 2015. That feels yeah. about right. That feels about right. Yeah. So that would have been seven whole years ago now. Crikey. Mm, I, know, wow. I know. Wow. And I hadn't been running the program for long then. Um, Paul no, Jordan, no, I think was you Paul Jordan's, Yeah. Yep. Was, was Paul leading it at that stage or was I leading it? Do you remember? No, it was still Paul. So, it was still Paul. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe we'll come to that later. But basically, um, Paul gave, came along to a, a, a student kind of uh, lecture type thing, which um, I was one of the presenters about some of my ideas. Uh, you know, after the talk, he came to me like, hey, you know, have you have you thought about, you know, IP and things like IP? What's that? And then he introduced <laughs> me to the innovation center and and that's how i got involved and i think yeah i remember you being there i think it was a year after you took over with um okay uh, when we also took part in the um, social impact prize and so on mm. may paul jordan rest in peace he he, he passed away um oh, no. within the last year um so um he i had the honor and I just, I, I really mean that of running uh, Startup Sussex and the Social Impact Prize and what we now call Startup Lab. Startup Lab are the workshops that you attended, Daniel, that build mm-hmm. into the competition, which is Startup Sussex and the Social Impact Prize. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. Good. Okay. I want you to tell us, Daniel, if you will, and I know you will, with great eloquence <laughs> about your learning journey. So you, you touched on this a little bit in your in in, in, in response to my first question, but I, I want to mm-hmm. die on a lean into that a bit more. Um, so you studied in Croatia, you studied in at Sussex, you studied at school back in Hungary in your, in your, through your childhood. Talk to us more about your learning journey um, and particularly your areas of expertise. Um, yeah. Reveal that to us all, please. All right, sure. Okay, so let's go on this journey. So because my parents worked in a in a kind of international community, I actually started my very first year of schooling in Croatia. So, and that was in a Croatian school, which meant I almost ended up with my second language being Croatian, having just you know been six years old at a time. And I was quite fluent by by the age nine because I spent three years, and it was it was very exciting. And then, just because my parents moved back uh, due to their jobs, I, I moved with them clearly back to Hungary, where I did the the other five years of my elementary school. So, so in Hungary, we have eight years of elementary, which the first we have done in in Croatia, and then the next. Uh, interesting. Now that I think about it, it's not as simple as it sounds, right? <laughs> so after three years, I actually went back to Hungary, and I didn't continue with my fourth year as you would normally do even though i had uh, decent grades i think what my parents have done very wisely is uh, made me repeat the third year in elementary school because in hungary you know the, the jump between the first two and then the third and the fourth is quite big and and my like language skills were nowhere near as good in hungarian as, as it should have been for a nine ten year old boy so i i i you know, try to catch up with my peers in Hungary. And then it ha- happened for five years until the year or, you know, the, the grade seven, almost at the end of elementary school, when we moved again to Croatia. 
So by that time, it made more sense for me to actually go to an international school. So I, I picked up uh, the system of IB, uh, which I think most people might be familiar with. Uh, so that's the International Baccalaureate uh, program. And that's where I've done my five years of, of uh, kind of last year of elementary and four years of secondary school, which gr- gave me the opportunity to, to study further in, in a foreign country. But I still had the choice to uh, you know, go back to Hungary or, or to do something else. And I was thinking, well, you know, I, I studied for the last five years in an in English language environment, so it would be a shame not to continue that and really improve my skills in an English-speaking country. But I wanted to stay somewhere close to, to my family, so I didn't want to go to the US or Australia. I, I, you know, England made, they made more sense, and it's, it's an exciting place. I really already liked at the time the, the kind of British culture. Um, and then I decided, okay, let's try this. But I wanted to play it safe because I wasn't sure just one or two years after losing my sight how, how well I would do, uh, you know, living independently um, a thousand miles away from, from support. Uh, so I enrolled to a Hungarian university. It's actually one of the top science universities in Budapest. And I was, I was uh, admitted, I, I could have started, but I decided to defer it by one year just to, just to play it safe. And in the meantime, I came to Sussex just to give it a try. And it worked exceptionally well. It was probably the best year of my life. It was, it was great. And and I decided to drop my Hungarian university and, and I stuck with Sussex where hey. I picked up <laughs> a physics course. And that's the other thing, right? Because so when I, in, in, in the secondary school, I was losing my sight and I knew that Accessibility support, disability support in Hungary is not as good as, as it is in, in England. At least it wasn't uh, in, in 2013. Um, but also, I want I really wanted to study physics. And, you know, half of my teachers and friends said, like, you know, it's it's very difficult um, uh, to do physics because there's equations and graphs. So you, you, you'll have challenges as, as a blind person, as a newly blinded person. Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I see the challenges because I did struggle with, you know, uh, homeworks in, in school. You know, I had to do it with my parents sitting with me or teachers. They taking notes for me, telling me the questions, writing down my answers and so on. So it was really difficult to imagine that in six months time, I just have to do this at university level all by myself, uh, almost, unless I figure out some sort of support. Um but I said, well, the other option is that I could do some economics or, you know, history. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested, really. I am interested now to, you know, just read books in my free time. But not, not I, I couldn't see myself as an economist or as a historian. So I was like, nah, you know what, even if it's difficult, I, I want to try physics. So I did. And it was a good choice. Cool. I got so many questions about physics, Daniel. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry. Um Oh, where do I start? Where do I start? I'll start at the beginning. That's that's always a good place to start, Daniel. Okay. Sometimes starting in the end is also good. Um, so let's talk about if you will entertain me, and I know you probably will. Um, let's talk about the beginning of the universe, and we won't talk about the end of the universe because that's that's a whole other question. Um, but let's talk about the early days of the universe and quantum, if you'll allow it, and a little bit of kind of interesting physics that occurred in the Big Bang, if we accept that, and 
Yeah. Like, we can, t- we, we don't want to have people leave the conversation now uh, by talking about clocks, ups and downs, and mm-hmm. all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so let's, let's pitch it right. Um, maybe, Daniel, if you could try, if you could conceptualize for me and anybody listening to us, the the standard model of physics, the kind of current explorations around the standard model, um, because the standard model, as you know, isn't complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of current, you know, look at the Webb telescope, dark matter, dark energy. There's lots mm-hmm. of research current currently going in and around this with the European Space Agency as well. Um, so yeah, tell us about that. Okay. Sure, I will try. That's uh, that's the biggest promise I can give you. Um, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, sorry, I, I'll just uh, rumble a bit just before I get onto the the juicy physics bits. But um, it's interesting when people you know call me physicist, and, and I suppose I am by by training and by degree. But I think it's also very very true that no matter how hard and how well you learn something, if you if you haven't practiced practices for a long time unfortunately that, that knowledge does fade very quickly and and i have to say I, I i've touched very little what i call real physics in the in the last five years so i've done lots of science communication you know just like reading things that are interesting uh but but you know it's I, I'm, I'm always very I'm, I'm a bit shy when people say like oh daniel is a physicist i'm like mm, i'm not sure lots of physicists would agree with that but okay, having having that just in the back of our minds. So back to standard model and Big Bang and all that. So the way you know I, I kind of learned and the way I see it, as you said, it's it's very far from complete. So we understand that roughly 14 billion years ago, something happened. We don't really know what was before that, but let's just call it that you know T0 when when the Big Bang happened. And what we mean by a Big Bang, it's really just that that was a tiny tiny singularity just a small you know, pinhead a lot, lot smaller than that which was incredibly dense and not only it was incredibly dense it expanded incredibly fast so it basically in, in just a matter of fractions of a second expanded mm. you know to the size of what our universe is now so and, and that's mm. pretty big mm. so lots of things happened there at the, at the moment it was just a, a big black container essentially so to speak. That, that section is quite true because there was plasma everywhere. Hmm. But what happened there was, for example, an equal amount of matter and antimatter, what we call now antimatter. You know, it, it, it's just because now what we see is normal to us. We call it a matter, but that was the opposite of that, which if the two met, they just um, crashed into each other and became pure energy. Um so we don't really know what happened to antimatter. Why did matter survive? Was there a little bit of an off-balance? Maybe, you know, it was 51-49, not quite 50-50. Otherwise, that wouldn't have been anything. Did some process happen that just by chance, um, you know, some, some matter escaped? And, and chance is a, maybe not the most scientific term, but it's quite uh, relevant because it's really what, when people talk about quantum fluctuations, is, is almost by chance that, that our universe as we know it today became to existence. So when I said the big black nothingness in the beginning, that was actually more like a, a plasma soup. So it was a mixture of you know really high energy uh, 
plasma. So basically, um, the the state that's uh, after like a gas gas like um, phase of matter. And then, due to these quantum fluctuations, we've seen that this soup started to have like uh, nodes in in it, some some denser regions. And then, because there were already some denser regions by by some chance, so to speak, it started to pull some of the other stuff closer to it, to it. So very slowly over time, we started to have very very dense regions again, and then uh, empty vacuum be- between. So those were the early stars, and you know the early kind of formations of, of galaxies and and so on. And as time went on, those you know, stars exploded, spat out some more heavy elements like like iron and so on and then the, the planets came along and, and you know uh, over the course of 14 billion years we had all these galaxies stars planets uh, in in our universe but also what we see what i kind of described so far uh, or the bulk of it is only four percent or four five percent of what we can see in the universe and we know that because all the laws around gravity and, and how the dynamic of the universe uh, behaves, you know, whether it expands or it might contract later on. Is it static? Is it just, you know, the size it is and that's all. We know that the, the stuff that we see, that 4%, is not enough. There has to be mm-hmm. something more, otherwise mm-hmm. the laws don't work. Mm-hmm. So that's what we call dark matter, the, the matter that mm-hmm. we don't see. Mm-hmm. I think, if I remember correctly, that counts for about 20% of the matter. So it's still added up. That's still just kind of 25-30% altogether, right? Mm-hmm. So what is what is the other 70%? What is causing the expansion? We kind of know how much matter there should be to bring everything together and not let it run freely uh, to kind of infinity. Uh, so what is that 70%? And, and we call it I something know. even more mysterious. I'll raise my hand so I know the answer to that. Like, I'm, I'm like oh, one of the, yeah, there you I'm go. One of the, I'm like one of the students in the class that wants yeah, to raise yeah, their hand yeah. and go like, I know, sir, because that's, I, I can't help myself. I, it, can you imagine me at university, Daniel, like desperate to talk at all the time? Like, it's, it's oh, horrendous. I, I was the same in the first year. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of learn just to kind of not put your hand up so much, but you I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those that can't help themselves. Um, is the answer dark energy, Daniel? It is, yes. But do not ask me what is dark energy. <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> um, no worries. We're still finding out. Um, good. Really, I mean, Daniel, that was such an eloquent explanation. Thank you for it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wipe the sweat from my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> you did extraordinarily well. Um, many people would take a lot longer to elucidate what you just said. Um Okay, I want to take you to a different place, mm-hmm. away from the the universe, dark mass, dark energy, and what we have. Um, I want to take, take so we've talked about educational background and backstory, etc. I want to talk about career history now. So coming out of mm-hmm. university into the world of work, um, tell us the story, Daniel, please. All right, sure. So yesterday, actually, I've been asked to to give a, a very small version of my CV, it's just a blurb of of what I've done so far for an introduction uh, to an event. And every time I look at my CV, and if I didn't know it, it would be like, oh well, this this man must be around forty years old, maybe the amount of stuff he's done. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, no, that can't be right. I mean, you know, I'm just twenty eight now. 
And, you know, this is not to say that I achieved so much. I don't think I have, but maybe a little bit more than, than some, some other people in, in my age. So <clears throat> um, during my studies, because of the challenges I faced, I felt the need that, well, you know, that there must be a better way of, of for example, reading equations or, or even accessing graphs if you're a blind person, just generally to, to make the learning experience uh, more accessible or more user-friendly um, in, in sciences. So I started to think and, and explore solutions. And it led, uh, I'm, I'm skipping a bit of the story here, but it led to me and, and four other incredibly talented people. I, I really, every time I think about them, I, I'm just so grateful I, I had them as part of my life. We, we decided to co-found a, a startup company, a student-led startup company to, to do exactly that, to make the, the science and technology learning experience a bit more easy for people who, who want to study it. Not for everybody, we didn't want to force it on people, but uh, if, if you wanted to, let's, let's make it easier. So that was Graphil Limited. And I somehow became the, the CEO of that. So, you know, we, should, we shouldn't really thinking CEO levels of Google and Apple, CEO of a, a, you know, a, five, a team of five students trying to do some good for the world and, and kind of exploring what entrepreneurship really means. And, and just to emphasize that, when we, I remember this one meeting between Tim, David and I, the, the three original co-founders, and we were, you know, trying to get our feet, uh, feet in the ground, you know, solid, like, okay, what do we do? How, how do we protect our IP? And what do we do with this idea? You know, how do we make it sustainable? And they said, oh, well, Daniel, you should be the CEO. I was like, CEO, what does that mean? Like, CEO? And they said, our chief executive officer. I was like, ah, okay, cool. I guess I can do that. So that was the level where we started from. And, and we had incredible support from Simon <laughs> and the Sussex Innovation Center. And, and, and generally lots of academics at the university and, and lots of people, including uh, uh, Paul Jordan. Um, yeah, and that, that happened between or during my undergraduate and the beginning of my PhD studies. Um, it was great fun, but, but we have to admit that, you know, we, we don't really have the resources and we were maybe not adventurous enough or not entrepreneurial enough to take the risk. And, and we didn't want to risk our academic potentials and careers uh, so so after some some decisions and struggles we decided to shut Graphiel down until until a better time comes for a, a new venture so I, I took a bit of a break from entrepreneurship and I focused on my PhD studies until um, earlier last year but in the process I, I took up small jobs here and there still to do with my passion that that kind of led to the birth of Graphiel Limited so I did a year and a half with a Hungarian charity called IT Foundation for the Visually Impaired. So there I supported them with, with some advice and, and technical support around how to make screen reader technology read out equations uh, better. And, and that was already a thing in, in the, let's say, American version of the software. But in Hungary, that feature wasn't translated. It wasn't uh, implemented. So I, I usually like to think that as a result of my work, for the first time, Hungarian people were able to read equations with that specific software, with a specific standard uh, that we tackled. So that was a very interesting year and a half um, as a, as a part-time job. And then towards the end of my PhD, I worked only for three months uh, with UltraLeap 
Limited, um, who is a company based in Bristol, working on the use of ultrasounds to create haptic sensations, so the sense of touch. And not only that, but they did it in mid-air, so almost like a tactile, three-dimensional hologram. Wow. I worked with them partly because I was super interested in, in you know, tangible, tactile interfaces, but also because they funded uh, you know, my PhD, so it was a nice um, experience in, in industry as well. Cool. And now, of course, at the end of my career, I nearly forgot. For the last three months, I'm, I'm the innovation manager at GDI Hub, the Global Disability Innovation Hub, which I describe as really my, my dream job or as the convergence of all the things I've been doing before because it has an entrepreneurial element to it, so a bit of my history from, from Graphiel. Um, then it has a bit of uh, a background in, in research, uh, which, you know, my academic research and, and some of the more research things I've done with Ultraleap is, is coming to it. But also I can, I can um, do the things that I enjoy, so teaching and advocacy to some extent. Cool. I'm so glad, Daniel, that you have your dream job. Like, that is a wonderful thing. Um, and just desserts for all of the work, effort, um, and progress that you've made in your life to date. Um, so I congratulate Simon. you. Simon. Go on. Sorry, uh, and apologies for the listener. If if you will excuse me just for a minute, I think my, my guide wants a little bit of attention. Yeah, no, sure you need to do. I'll pause all right. recording. All right. Thank you. Okay, so we're back live. Um, Daniel, uh, you had your guide dog um, just there. So your dog, guide dog's name is? Anna. Uh, Anna. Yes. Anna. Yes, and right. uh, how long have you had Anna for? Not for very long, only for nine months or so. She moved in with me around the middle of April last year. And then we, we kind of had this intense um, three, four weeks of training. And then, then kind of I got the driving license to, to have her with me. The, the the charity guide dogs uh, for the blind association trusted me enough to to look after her and wow. yeah she is she is such a lovely dog i mean she's super clever she's very uh, well behaved and you know she helps me so much just getting around uh, from from point a to point b but she's also a, a very attentiony girl she she likes attention and she doesn't get it for like an hour then she she likes to moan <laughs> Okay, uh, I guess like all living sentient things, they need a bit of attention, right? Um, so that's okay. I'm glad you were able to give her some attention and that we were able to pause and come back. Um, Anna, um, what a wonderful name and what a wonderful dog. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because my 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 too personal, but so my one of my grandmothers, uh, who I, I never knew, she passed away when, when my dad was a child. And her name is uh, Anna as well. Okay, so, okay. Oh. you know, we, we are not particularly religious in, in the family, but you know, it's always a bit of like, what an interesting coincidence, you know, Anna has kind of come back to look after me, so to speak. But, yeah. That's amazing, Daniel. That's amazing. I love that story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Okay, good. We're going to go back to GDI Hub, Global Disability mm -hmm. Innovation Hub. Um, and I want to ask you, Daniel, what's the most exciting project that you're working on at the moment? All right. So I am working on something called GDI Hub Accelerate. And well, it's, it's, a, it's a job for me to describe in a sentence or two what it is. 
But essentially what we are trying to do is that out of the five domains that GDI Hub is operating in, so there's research, there's teaching, advocacy, program implementation, and innovation. This is, GDI Hub Accelerate is going to be the innovation arm. It's going to pick up, if not 100%, close to 100% of the innovation activities we do. And there is, I like to think about it as a, as a table, right? So uh, uh, four legs with, with a tabletop. And the four pillars of the four legs are an innovation network. And, and this is to help people connect who have the same ambition like I did with Graphil or like anybody else has that, you know, we want to innovate, do some uh, real impact beyond research and, and just kind of random business creation. We, we want to do business for, for the good, really, and, and help disabled people one way or another. So it's to connect them and so we don't have to be always the, the middleman. And then the other two legs are what I call the ecosystem and the ecosystem plus. So in the ecosystem, we have the three S's, so spark innovation, startup innovation, and scale-up innovation. And, and that's really just different levels of the innovation journey. So <clears throat> Very often, spark innovation is just things where we, we disclose a challenge in a, a particular topic and, and have people you know, work on the problem for a day, two weeks in, in forms of hackathons, do some, you know, make some new uh, kind of bespoke assistive solutions, repair existing solutions in, in kind of novel ways, really. And, um, and generally, you know, just, just to see if there is any good ideas coming out of it. But... It's not necessarily thinking about uh, sustainability and, and long-term uh, impact. And then, <clears throat> of course, the kind of startup innovation speaks for itself. It's it's what I kind of experienced as well as, as part of my Graphile uh, journey. So we do uh, lots of AT, entrepreneurship training, <clears throat> and, and the related uh, activities around it. And the scale-up innovation is really the stage when the startups are, are you know, getting the hang of it and, and they are ready to, to have sales and, and bring in um, volumes of, of uh, revenue and, and get investment and also to, to do the real impact uh, on, on people. So that's, that's kind of the ecosystem, the way is at the moment within Accelerate. And Ecosystem <clears throat> Plus is... Um, is the way to enable or catalyze innovation in the ecosystem. So here we have, for example, an industry or an investment forum where we would like to have all the organizations uh, come together who expressed already help and, and they are helping uh, within their uh, environment, let's say. You know, just like, you know, well, most people will know that, you know, Google is working on accessibility uh, products and Microsoft is developing accessibility from Apple is, and so does lots of big organizations like the WHO, the World Health Organization, or the World Bank uh, have, you know, uh, ambitions to, to help with um, disability inclusion and, and so on. So we want to bring these people and, and essentially give a direction, lead the way, um, and, and tell them how they can help most efficiently in, in a focused way. And the fourth leg would be innovation support. So that's really to, to give the appropriate support to the appropriate levels of, uh, of the ecosystem 
you know, it could be just a, a fairly standard uh, kind of entry-level training for the startup uh, uh, entrepreneurs, but it could be a bit, bit more bespoke support um, for scale-up uh, founders who, you know, need a bit of uh, insight to investments and, and scaling their business. So yeah, that's that's the big project. It's it is as complex as it sounds, uh, and I wish I could, you know, make faster progress on it. Um, but realistically, I only have like two, three hours a week on average, you know, to spend on on each branch, each core element, and then, you know, I have to set aside time to to bring all the pieces together, making sure that the the sum of the pieces is is more than you know the the original kind of mess. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm doing. That's kind of what I'm doing. I love it. Um, <laughs> um, that's great. Very good. I'm I'm super excited about your role at GDI Hub. Um, I think they're lucky to have you. You're lucky to have them. I think it's a great collaboration. I, is the way I see it, Daniel. And <laughs> I'm excited about the potential collaboration that's going to happen with us as well. Um, so let's see how that moves forward. Um, and uh, yeah, I know we have meetings in the diary to, to make things happen, which is kind of how we roll, which is exciting. Um, the future for Daniel and GDI Hub, you've ex- eloquently covered the complex space in which you work and um, the all of the initiatives that GDI Hub are looking to bring forwards. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe from a personal perspective, Daniel, the future for you, uh, looking forward three years, let's say 2025, what's what's happening in mm-hmm. your world? Okay, so my role was created uh, out of some, you know, some new funding that we had, partly because this role needed to be made so, so we can make some, some good impact happen, but also because <clears throat> GDI was only uh, formally funded, I believe, in 2016. It's, it's a london paralympic legacy so it, oh, the idea started from 2012 so it's, it's very fresh and, very and i'm already impressed that the um, you know all if if you add up all the projects we we worked on across you know, in in i think 35 different countries with more than 70 partners and and the figure that is on our website and, and we usually refer to is is a portfolio of 50 million pounds which is, you know, not necessarily the cash in the in the bank account. It's just the value that was delivered in one way or another. But there was only, you know, like 10, 15 people working on it, really. And so, so they needed more people to focus on specific projects. And I, I still feel the weight of that. So even though I'm, I'm practically coordinating all the elements of, of GDI Hub Accelerate and, and even picking up some other bits within GDI Hub, I, I very much see myself have, you know, two, three people working on, on specific parts of GDI Hub Accelerate. So have a, a manager for just our, let's say, innovation coaching um, aspect to, to make sure everybody gets the right support, the right people. Our coaches are, are feeling good about it. You know, they are not exploited. They, they uh, develop their professional skills as well in the process. I would imagine that you know that there should be really somebody managing the whole innovation network, and then maybe somebody focusing on the ecosystem and and how people transition between the levels. You know, how does a a startup become a scale up? How does a a successful hackathon idea become a startup? Doing that all by myself, I love it. 
but you know it, it it's very very demanding to to split my mind into into 10 different regions and then bring it all together at the end of the day <clears throat> so you know i would i would love to really lead and, and own this project and my approach in the beginning whilst we are launching it is that you know for every single member who comes and joins i, I want to be there in person you know shake their hand so to speak virtually say hi let them know what I think is the best place for them in, in Accelerate and, and see how they can support us, how we can support them. Uh, but of course, when, you know, in the long-term vision, this is going to be thousands of, of stakeholders, big or small. I, I think uh, we need to think about how, how to scale it. So I kind of see myself as as a little bit of a, a, a leadery type role in, in the innovation domain of, of disability innovation. And, and then make sure that uh, I have an excellent team to to help with some of the more hands-on day-to-day tasks. Fabulous. Daniel, again, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you today. Um, hopefully listeners have enjoyed tuning in as well. Um, this was quite serendipitously uh, I just wanted to talk to Daniel so this would seem like a good excuse um and <laughs> I, I've learned a lot Daniel so thank you um so we'll we'll pull it together there and um all it remains for me to say is um Daniel Innovation Manager Global Disability Innovation Hub thank you thank you very much Simon it was a pleasure and you know I'm really glad you came up with your excuse because I always have to find excuses like I, I want to speak to Simon I was so happy after a few years when you know we, we didn't have much contact that, that I had a chance, like, yes, I can finally have something that might be interesting for Simon as well. So let me, let me speak to him. And the reality <laughs> is it's proved super interesting. Great stuff, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.